So let me begin by asking a question. Um, what is a church? And I want to hear from you. What, what is a church? What is the church? It's the children of God. The church is the body of Christ. Body of Christ, children of God. I would say um, gathering or group of believers in Jesus Christ. Okay. Specifically Jesus Christ. Okay. Not anything else. <laughs> okay. Good. We've got to say that, don't we? Anybody else? It's a really big question. And, and I'm going to tell you the question gets answered incorrectly a lot. And it's, it's also a basic and simple question. And we've been all over it. We, we have answered it here tonight. I don't have anything to improve on that. I am going to speak to it a little bit further. But every one of those answers is exactly spot on. When I first came here six years ago... In certain circles, it was a pretty controversial question. And it, it sparked some lively debates. <laughs> um, the church is not a building. The church is not an event. What have we said here tonight that the church is? Say it loud. A people. That is exactly right. We've had that from the pulpit in the last many months. The church is a people, not a building and not an event. The church is not something that we do. Finish the sentence for me. It's something that we are. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of churches in America. Let's just talk America because I know America pretty well. They get that wrong. And they think church is something we do. In fact, they say we did church together at such and such place. And, and that's really not good, good thinking. We are the church. It's God's people, believers. What, how did you say it again, Blake? And nothing else. Yeah, and this is where the controversy was at, at times. And I know pastors all over the place that run into this controversy of, is the church made up of believers or believers and non-believers. It, it, the true church is made up of believers, right? Now, let's be careful. Only God knows the heart. And I will tell you that there are churches that have members today that are not believers. And I'm going to say that's okay because we can't figure all that out. God can figure all that out, but we can't be okay with that if we know it to be certain about someone. And so that means that we've got to have some requirements for membership, doesn't it? Exactly. I didn't mean it like that. I just mean that the church is... We know what you meant. We know what you meant. Because as we gather as believers, we welcome unbelievers amongst us, don't we? We want them here. Absolutely. But they are not yet the church. And we don't need to run around and say, you're not the church. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. But we need to understand that the true church is defined biblically as made up of the children of God believers in Jesus Christ and no one else, and we as a church are to be a light into the world, 
a light unto the Gentiles, if you will, and we are to bring them along so that they could join the true church of Jesus Christ. And we could get into a conversation tonight that I don't, I, I won't, about the, the visible church and the invisible church and the universal church and the local church. I'm just talking about the true church of God, of Jesus Christ, is made up of believers. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3.15. Because I think this is a verse that needs to be held closely through the, the remaining nine weeks after tonight. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is an elder in the church in Ephesus. And he's saying in chapter 3, starting in 14, I hope to come to you, Timothy. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I really like that verse. That's a strong, bold. I, I like the words pillar and buttress used around the term church. It's not a soft place of soft people. It's a bold place making a declarative statement about a really big God who is living. And everything that we are to be about is to fulfill this role of being a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Real quick, what is the truth that we are a pillar and buttress of? The gospel. And the gospel ultimately is a person named Jesus Christ who did something. He did something, didn't he? Became flesh, never sinned, died on a cross, was buried and truly dead, and was resurrected on the third day. Ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he is making intercession for his church to this day. And he's coming again. That's the truth. Yeah. And we need to be a pillar and a buttress of that declarative statement to the world. And a pillar and buttress is what we are to be on display for the world. Not hidden, not secluded, not huddled up. But big and bold, pillar and buttress for the whole world to look upon and go, wow, there's a living God. And there's a gospel. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he did something extravagant. And these people love him for it. Just listen to Ephesians two nineteen to 22. This is the same Paul writing to the church in Ephesus that Timothy is an elder in. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's outside of the church. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that phrase again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Right here is the truth that we're built on. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's not a building, is it? It's a people being installed on a chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so it's people with the analogy of a building. 
So given these truths, I'm going to say that if we're talking about a, a true church, okay, there are two kinds of true churches. There's healthy ones and there's unhealthy ones. I think you can have an unhealthy true church, but do we want to be unhealthy? No. So real quick, you tell me. Let's define it. Give me some shout-outs. What is a healthy church? What would, what would that look like? Growing and reaching people. Grow, define growing. Okay. So there's a lot in that little phrase, making disciples. So there is numerical growth, but it's quality numerical growth because we're dealing with true disciples of whom? Jesus Christ, not a pastor, not a women's ministry, not a youth group, but of Jesus Christ. What are, what? Huh? Okay. 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 Healthy church is mission minded. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Let's do a brain dump. Good. Doctrine, sound doctrine. Okay. 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 Thank you. So we need some Lord's Supper. Because what are we doing in that? We're remembering the greatest thing short of the resurrection, but we're declaring it, declaring it until he comes again, which means we're acknowledging the resurrection, but we're remembering substitutionary atonement. Baptism, death, burial, resurrection, new life. A healthy church takes the Lord's Supper and baptizes Deploying their giftedness for his glory. Yeah. 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 And healthy church defines scripture, not this church. Good. Are they learning on the Sunday? Yeah, we think so. We think so. And then we'll define further because there's, there's some wrong ways to be elder led. You're not going there yet, but elder-led with some qualifications, growth with qualification of growth in disciples, and so there's, yeah, but sound biblical leadership. What do you think an unhealthy church looks like? And don't just tell me the opposite of everything that we just said, but, but 
let's shout out some specifics. Be careful with this. We don't need to be throwing rocks at somebody. But what are, what are unhealthy things that are going on in a church? Mm, number one, probably. So I'll I'll concise that down yeah. to practices church discipline. Right. Would yeah. And a healthy church would not practice church discipline. Fair enough? Succinct phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, not preaching about sin. Okay. Okay. Uh, if somebody has said something already, re-say it real quick. Can you go restart the routine? <laughs> okay. So, now, I'm going to ask you a question next, and... I don't, I'm not looking for an answer. I'll answer it for us. How about us? Healthy or unhealthy? Think about that for a moment. How about us? How about us? Yeah. And I would want you to think, are we generally a healthy church? Or are we crashing on the rock somewhere or languishing somewhere or and yeah there's room for improvement across the board yeah I'm asking the question from this perspective, not ours per se, but when we look at our church through here, what do we see, you know? And I'm going to tell you that we are uh, cautiously 
optimistic that we are a very healthy church with a lot of room to grow in a lot of areas. But generally, we look across, and when we look at these nine marks that we're going to go through this fall, we don't say, we've got to get a fire squad down there on that one and put that out and yank the roots out and replant and, and redo something. But here's our, here's our statement, and I, I thought of this this afternoon driving in my car. We are healthy, but we want to be healthy on purpose. We don't want to fall into healthy categories. We want to intentionally go into healthy categories. And we want to knowingly understand where we are in health or non-health and do something about it to make it even more healthier or get it corrected to where it needs to be at a basic level of health. And so we're going to look at these nine marks very intentionally, and we're going to look at ourselves along the way, and we might need to make some tweaks and some adjustments. But we don't have... Seven that we're good at and two that are on fire that we've got to douse and, and re, rebuild. Um, here's a succinct definition of a healthy church. It's a lot more than this, but it's not less than this, okay? Because, golly, we could be here all night long defining a healthy church. But I've got four statements. It's a collection of believers who are followers of Jesus Christ who gather to worship him. So that's not a country club. We're gathering to worship. And in a way, that is that should be better than a country club, right? Um, and it's centered on Jesus Christ. And it's made up of people who are followers of him. Secondly, it's where the word of God is purely preached and heard and applied. Got to have that application. It's got to be heard. It's got to be proclaimed. And it's got to be the word of God. Number three... It's where the ordinances of believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper are embraced and practiced. Not nodded at, but done regularly in good grief. There's all kinds of regularly. I've, we were a member of a church that had Lord's Supper every single Sunday, and we've been members of churches that did it quarterly. I'm not advocating necessarily for every Sunday, but I will not be a part of an every quarter church. It's got to be much more frequent than that. We're monthly right now. We're not rigid on it. It might be five weeks and then three weeks and then four weeks, four weeks, six weeks, two weeks. But we're regular, and we're looking at Lord's Supper at least 12 times a year because we need to remember often the work that Christ did in his body and his blood. And then lastly... It is a place where church discipline is practiced. And you have to or you get the country club. And boy, we're going to talk about church discipline. It's its own subject. It's one of the nine marks. I think it's number eight. And man, a lot of churches do that wrong. It's got to be done lovingly and worshipfully. And it's got to be done rightly according to Scripture not according to the whim of some members or some elders. We've got to look into the Bible, and we've got to bring the Bible to a situation. And then Matthew 18 gives us some procedures that we should follow, generally. And we need to be faithful as a congregation to do that. So there's, there's a succinct definition of a healthy church. There's a lot of other things, but those things have got to be core. Believers, Word of God preached, ordinances regularly practiced, and membership is taken seriously, i.e. discipline. Uh, so this fall, we're going to be looking at nine marks of healthy churches. The nine marks are not all there is to a healthy church. 
However, these are nine absolutes that are absolutely non-negotiable. So we know these nine we've got to be good at. And there's others that we need to be able to look at, but we've got to fulfill these nine well before we can move on to other areas. If we're strong in these, great. Then we get the luxury of going and looking at some of the lesser things and saying, okay, what's unique about us that for us to be healthy, we've got to really get good at according to the Bible. And I think, I think beyond these nine and maybe beyond 12 or 15, whatever the number is, there are some marks that are unique to churches based on where the Lord has put those churches that you're going to have to say, you know, we're going to have to be extra good at that versus some church in Dallas that, that doesn't really have that. So that's a mark that's unique to us. And we'd like to be able to say that we're going after those kinds of marks because we're already solid in these nine that we're looking at. Uh, Pursuing these nine and others, uh, I want you to know, congregationally, is a worthy endeavor. It's good to have this kind of conversation as a church family for nine weeks, ten weeks. Because if we say we want to be about these nine biblical marks of a healthy church, we're actually worshiping the head of the church, Jesus Christ, because we're conforming to his model of what he thinks the church ought to be. And so we need to remember something. And this was said, I think Blake said this early on. If you remember my last sermon in Nehemiah chapter 13, does anybody remember the title of that sermon? I said it during the service. I don't expect that you would. Always reforming. Remember Nehemiah 12, dedicating the walls. Everything's great. Nehemiah 13, busting up the covenants right and left, right? And Nehemiah had to do some final reforms of the people. Well, we are always going to have to be reforming. We are just like those Israelites. And we're going to need to continually be looking at ourselves and saying, where does reformation need to happen? Where do we need to revitalize ourselves and get back to, get back to a, a issue that we're not complying with in one of these nine marks? And so that's one of the purposes for this fall. We're always reforming, and we need to be ready to look where adjustments need to be made. Now, let me give you a couple of warnings before we break into what these nine marks are. There are, generally speaking, in, I will say, in the Baptist world. I can't speak to Presbyterian world, Episcopal world, Lutheran world, but in the Baptist world, there's generally three models of church in our day. Three models of church. First one is liberal What's a liberal church? Right. It starts right there. They are not grounded on the word. Doesn't mean they don't expository preach because you can topically preach the word of God just fine. We think expository is premium and that's next week's subject. <laughs> but yeah, they've diverted from the word of God and all kinds of things happen from there. Yep, and it doesn't take long to get way down. So it's a place where the gospel is repackaged. So they've diverted from the true gospel. It's been repackaged in contemporary terms to reach people and to meet their felt needs with Christian language. That's a liberal church. We're going to use Christian language to reach people. We like that reach people part to meet their felt needs. Well, what's wrong with our felt needs? 
Everybody remember this phrase, our feelings are fallen, aren't they? Yeah, our minds, our hearts, our feelings are fallen. And we do not make decisions based on feelings. We go here. And then we seek counsel of other people that are here. So liberal churches uh, repackage the gospel in contemporary terms, such as prosperity gospel. If you just believe enough, you'll be rich, you'll be healthy, you'll be happy, you'll be whatever. Morality gospel. You're a Christian if you don't do these things and if you do do those things. There's no Christ in that. And yet they'll borrow all kinds of Christian language, right? We need to be pure sexually. We need to be uh, generous. All these things are true of Christianity, but these things don't save us. The morality does not save us. The most moral one does in believing in him. There's liberation theology. What's that? You ever heard of that? You're in bondage to alcohol or drugs. If, if you, you can be liberated from that if, and it's not if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ and worship him and him alone, but it's if you come to church and if you start doing moral things and if you don't surround yourself with these kinds of people and so on and so forth. That's a liberation theology. And then I think I had another one. I've lost my spot in my notes. Oh, self-improvement programs. Right? A lot of churches, liberal churches, are really about you come here and you can self-improve. And we'd love to be the, the ones to help you improve yourself. There's only one way to improve ourselves. It's to trust in the perfect one. Then there's the second type of church, the seeker-sensitive church. What's that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Good. It's heavily evangelistic without the gospel. Very evangelistic. Yeah. It's evangelistic from the perspective of the lost person and not from the perspective of the Savior. And so I'm going to figure you out, and whether it's, I don't know if it's music, if it's short sermons, if, if it's funny stories, if it's social programs, and, and just fellowship, fellowship is very important, we're, we're going to figure out what you, what you need and want, and we're going to deliver that. Again, it's a lot like the liberal church with Christian language, and we're going to... Yep, and so there's this navigation of how do we have enough Bible but not too much, and that's a slippery slope. Third type of church is the traditional church. What do you think that is? Huh. I'm looking for a word you said earlier. Yeah? Yeah, and Blake gave us the word 10 minutes, 15 minutes ago of program-driven. 
and we have our programs, our silos, and we're going to go find people, and you look like you belong in that silo, and we're going to get you into our programs and get you fixed. All of these kind of intertwine together because they've all abandoned Scripture as the first and foremost, and they're all looking at people. But the traditional church says, you know what, you do need to conform to us, but we're going to tell you where you fit amongst us, and then we're going to plug you in there, and everything will be just fine. And then they're going to run stats on how many new people came into the program and how many people attended all these things, and they're going to say, success. And oftentimes those program-driven churches have totally abandoned the gospel. And yet they don't know it because they've used all the gospel language. And these are things that we have to guard against. We could do any one of these if we don't watch it. So, all of these models are driven by the same assumption, and it's this. The fruit of effective churches is always readily evident. They say, if you're an effective church, you will know it. You'll just look and you'll see it. And they say it's readily evident in the area of so many are present, so many are involved, or so many are saved, or so many have been baptized, or... And we look at all these metrics and say, successful church. And that's not right. We, yeah. Right. And, right. But you can run amok in it. And our, our Bible is full of things that don't look successful for a long, long time before success happens. Did Job's life look successful? Yeah, but, at, but after Satan was on a leash, but he had his way with him, and, and that didn't look successful, did it? Did Joseph's life look successful? Did Mary's life look successful immediately? And we could go on and on. And so we, we've got to be careful that we don't measure success as the world does. Uh, Mark Dever says in this book, the two most easily recognizable hallmarks of secularization in America are the exaltation of numbers and of technique. Secular America is driven by numbers and technique. And he says to us in warning, we can't let that creep into the church. Now, we do look at numbers. I'm not saying we just throw them all aside, but we got to be really careful at how we look at those numbers. And so we need to guard against the secular measurements of health in that we don't need to be numbers-driven or we don't need to be technique or style-driven. And I want to give you an example. Uh, I had a guy say to me one time, I used to come to church and would leave feeling good about myself. But I don't anymore. Uh, that's scary to hear, I'll, I'll tell you. And I stopped and said, okay, come here and talk. Do you leave this church feeling bad about yourself? Yeah. Okay. Do you leave feeling bad about yourself because I and my personality and my approach to things made you feel bad about yourself? No, 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 no. 
Okay. Well, I want you to know that my goal, at least in my ministry, is for you to leave here feeling good about Christ. And if you leave here feeling good about Christ, and you understand where you are in relation to Christ, at some point, if you get right with that Christ, you will feel good about yourself to an appropriate degree. But I aim for you to leave the counseling session, the sermon session, the teaching session, feeling really good about a mighty big God that's found in the Bible, and he is the solution to all that ails you. And if you're telling me it's not a personality thing and that I've not been calloused or arrogant or cocky or whatever, I want you to keep coming because you do, in some sense, when you relate, your, relate yourself to God, you feel bad about yourself because then you can feel good about the Christ who saves you and redeems you. And you've got to understand that as a church, I do believe we got to live right there and be willing to speak to sin, because a lot of churches skip it, and that's how people leave feeling good about themselves. They don't talk about our sinfulness. They don't say we always need to be reforming. We're just like the Israelites in Nehemiah 13. And they leave feeling good about themselves. And all the while, we're not dealing with a true church or a healthy true church. So here's what Dever says. If the aim of the church is to grow numerically. The way to do it is to make people feel good. And when people discover that there are other ways to feel good, they will leave the church because they no longer need it because those ways make me feel good. Now this used to, now that does, and I'm out of here. And you never had a true or healthy church, did you, with those people? The relevant church, the relevant church, the church that wants to be relevant in the culture is sowing the seeds of its own irrelevance and losing its identity to boot. (laughs) So when you want to become, as a church, relevant to everybody, and you do things to do that, you're actually making yourself irrelevant, and it's going to bite you at some point. It's funny, but that's true. I think that's a very good quote. So here's the challenge for the for the church and and what we, along with many others, are facing today. On the one hand, there is the temptation to conform to certain aspects of the culture, but to do so would actually compromise the elements of the gospel and therefore lose the gospel itself. We don't want to do that. On the other hand, to remain faithful to the gospel means that in our day, it will be more difficult for nominal Christianity to exist and thrive in our church, which will drive those people away. What is a nominal Christian? Cultural Christian, Christian in name only. Yeah. And if we are faithful to this word, I will tell you, we will be a hard place for a nominal Christian who wants to remain nominal to stay here. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And we, we've just got to have this kind of conversation together and understand those people need real, specialized, gospel-driven evangelism. We don't just say nominal. We've we got to go after those people, but we don't go after them by becoming relevant to them on their societal terms and their fallen terms and their carnal terms, their nominal terms. 
But we also have to be willing to say, this is going to be a hard place if we're going to do church by this book. It's going to be a hard place for nominal people to remain with us. And we're going to sometimes watch people leave us because of that. And we have experienced that here. It can't be because we're snarky. It can't be because we're uh, aloof. It can't be because we're cocky. But if they leave because we're lovingly and happily biblical, we're going to have to understand that that goes against every fiber of their nominal heart, soul, and mind. And so we really need to be evangelizing them, even if they leave us. So we must be careful to be culturally relevant. I'm not saying we don't consider the culture and how we can go after the people in the culture. But we cannot compromise any aspect of the gospel in doing that. We need to take the unapologetic gospel to the culture in ways that the culture can hear it unabashedly with the prayer that those people will then turn and be drawn in. Okay, so let's turn the corner and let's run through the nine marks. That's all set up for why we need to understand these nine marks of a healthy church. And we need to look at ourselves reflectively each week as we go through theirs. I really like what Mark Dever said in this book. Listen to this little bitty sentence. Certainly no church is perfect. But thank God, many imperfect churches are healthy. Isn't that good? Doesn't that rightly take pressure off of us to say, we've got to be perfect, and wow, we're nowhere near it. No, we are very imperfect. We will be until Christ comes again. But along the way, can we be healthy and progressing towards more states of health daily? Yeah. And I think that statement is work, works for us. I am not perfect. But as an imperfect Christian, I can look in my life and say I'm healthy generally, unhealthy a little bit more here than there. But I think it works for me as an individual, and it certainly works for us as a church because a church is not a building. It's a bunch of us. So with that, let's look through real quick, just a quick run run through. We're doing good on time. Here's Mark number one. This will be next week. Uh, Pretty sure we've dialed Colton up for this one. I'm not going to remember who's teaching which one, so I'm going to not name who's. And we may have to change these during the weeks. The first one up is expository preaching. What is it? Okay. Uh, I, this Sunday I could be in 1 Corinthians. Next Sunday I could be in Revelation. Next Sunday I could be in Genesis. But I could be an expository preacher because the text drives the sermon. It's not book by book, verse by verse. That's a brand of expository preaching that we do like around here. But expository preaching in its most basic definition is is what you did in Ecuador with Galatians 5. You preach, brother, an expository sermon. And he that's a one and done, right? He wasn't in there week after week. And he said, hey, last week we were in Galatians 4. Now we're in Galatians 5. That was an expository sermon. So it's text-driven, not necessarily book by book, verse by verse, although that's the ultimate, we think, of expository preaching. Huh? Good. And here's a key phrase for expository preaching. Scripture 
interprets Scripture. You don't read a verse and launch off into the wild blue yonder and say, I preached that text. No, you come back and you get a little more and you wash the folks. And you come and get a little more and you wash the folks. That's expository preaching. So it's not just a style that one pastor likes over another. I do believe that good, healthy churches have topical pastors. I'm not saying this is an absolute, but we do believe, along with Mark Dever and the, the Nine Marks people, that the best, most faithful way to preach the Word of God is expositorily or expositionally. Okay? Um, I really want to read this quote to you. We'll go through the other ones faster, but there's a quote in the intro to this book that Dever says. Just, just listen to me. It's long, but I think you'll get it. I think you'll get it. According to George Barna, we know who Barna is, Barna Research. According to George Barna, sermons should be easier to understand, less abstract, more spontaneous, shorter, filled with more stories of the preacher's personal experience, and they should even allow the participation of the audience. Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you, that, that doesn't happen over in that room on Sunday, does it? That's George Barna, big-time nationwide research. Barna is not alone in suggesting that we do something to mitigate the one-sidedness and the bare appeal to reason that marks so much preaching, particularly expositional preaching. Permit me to suggest that the one-sidedness of preaching is not only excusable, but it is actually important. If in our preaching we stand in the place of God, giving His Word by His Spirit to His people, then surely it is appropriate that it be one-sided. Not that it should be one-sided in the sense that the one preaching is never to be questioned, but in the event of preaching itself, the singular character of God's Word comes as a monologue to us, not hoping to elicit interest and participation, but requiring that we respond. This does not mean that the sermon must be deliberately boring, obscure, or abstract. But it is a monologue if done right, and the speaker is God in His Word. And there is a guy in the pulpit being a mouthpiece. But it really does, on Sunday morning, that setting does need to be a monologue of God's Word. And He's chosen to put men in that pulpit to do that. There's other settings where it's more dialogue, right? But expository preaching in a corporate worship service is a high form of worship, and it needs to be a monologue. We, we believe that. We're, we're not going to shift into some new age, and there's a lot of new age church preaching models out there. And we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. And the old-fashioned way has worked for 2,000 years and before. Number two, biblical theology. What do you think that is? Real quick. That's a, that's a term that's kind of out there. What is biblical theology? What is theology? Study. Study of God. What's biblical? God's Word. Biblical theology says we consider the God of the whole Bible. And we don't go, well, right here I see God is angry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's, a, he's just an angry God. That would not be biblical theology. But we would also see that he is a God of love and that he sent Ezra to his people. And after 70 years of exile, he fulfilled his promise and brought them back to Jerusalem. So now I've got a biblical theology of God, wrath 
and love and faithfulness to his promises. And then it just expands from there. So we believe that a healthy church has a whole Bible perspective of God. And we never take him in isolation in a verse and speak against him and, and because we're just in that verse in this moment and speak against how he is in the whole Bible. Very, very important. And we do that with homosexuality and we do that with marriage and we do that. We, we look at the whole Bible for all the subjects to draw in a good full picture of God and his commands. Uh, number three, the gospel. I think we know what the gospel is, but here's the question. How many other messages are churches hawking as the saving good news of Jesus Christ besides the pure gospel out of the Bible? You had prosperity gospel, morality gospel, liberation theology, all these things are claimed to be the gospel when all along they never get to a bloody cross and a perfect substitute and a true burial and a resurrection. And all those things start getting assumed. And next thing you know, we don't have the true gospel being proclaimed. And you do that for several years and you're going to have an unhealthy church on that point. And that's like the center of everything. And so we've always got to be about the gospel and to make sure that our gospel consists not only of, you know, or that, that our gospel consists only of universal ethical truths for our daily lives or that their once for all historical special saving actions of God in Christ are at the root of everything that we're about. Got to make sure that we're Christ centered in everything. Number four, a biblical understanding of conversion. Whoa. One of the most difficult tasks of pastors is trying to undo the damage of false conversions of those who have been too quickly and thoughtlessly assured by the evangelist that they were indeed saved. And I talk to my brother pastors all over everywhere, and there is an epidemic in the American church of, of dare I say it, false conversions. Because they were quick to get wet in the baptistry. Such apparently charitable activity may lead to short bursts of excitement, involvement, and interest. But in an apparent if, if an apparent conversion does not result in a changed life, then that person begins to wonder at the unwitting cruelty of convincing them, being convinced that because they once prayed a prayer, they have fully investigated and have hope in God. And they say things like this, if that failed then Christianity has nothing more to offer me. No more hope, no more life. I tried, and it didn't work. Boy, we don't ever want that to be somebody's words years after they sat amongst us. Number five, a biblical understanding of evangelism. Wow. If in our evangelism we imply that becoming a Christian is something that we do ourselves we disastrously pass on our misunderstanding of the gospel and of conversion. In our evangelism, we must be partners with whom? The Holy Spirit. We must be partners presenting the gospel, but relying on the Holy Spirit of God to do the true convicting and true convincing and true converting. And that means sometimes we've got to be patient and persistent. Sometimes the Lord waits to save people. That doesn't mean we say, one and done, see you later. No, we go back, and we go back, and we go back. But we don't go back to manipulate them to say yes to our message. 
We allow God to do that work. But we're faithful with the message. Number six, a biblical understanding of church membership. Dever says in his book, I'm quoting him here, our churches have drifted into self-centered narcissism, hyper-individualism, and it, it is veiled in everything from spiritual gift inventories, which, by the way, be careful with that. But, but a lot of people say, I want to know what my gift is, and when I get it done, I'm going to go do it to my church. When all along, God's brought somebody to the church, and there's needs sitting right there, and it doesn't matter if you have the gift for that or not. You need to go meet that need of that person because you've probably got the gift for it. But it didn't show up on the inventory, so I'm not doing it. People do this, y'all. And so that's what he's speaking to there. And I'm not condemning spiritual gift inventories across the board, but I am saying do that with extreme caution. And if it says something, yet you still see a dire need in your church or with that person, and it didn't fit your inventory item, get after it anyway. <laughs> Don't hide behind the inventory and what it said or didn't say. Uh, he goes on to say, so let me, let me, veiled in everything from gift inventories to very targeted churches that aren't for everybody. And we're getting more and more specialties going on in the church world these days. You just look at their names. And that their names, they're named after things that say, these kinds of people are welcomed here. Maybe you know where I'm going, and I'm not saying all of those churches are bad, but man, a lot of them are absolute junk because they are really narcissistic and about the people there, and they are their own unique kind of country club. And so we've got to have a biblical understanding of church membership, and we've got to get back to this idea that it's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, and the people that make it up are called the household of God. Number seven, biblical church discipline. The question is, is there any behavior that churches should not tolerate? And yet I'm going to tell you there's some churches with things going on in them, and they will not say boo to those people. And they are ransacking the message of the gospel in doing so. And they are allowing those people to traject their way right into hell if they don't turn from what they're doing. And it is the church's job to be a pillar and a buttress of the what? The truth. And when the truth is contradicted, that church is not a pillar and a buttress. It's an enabler of tearing down the message of the gospel. And yet, we don't go on the Salem witch hunt, right? We don't do that either. We're biblical in approaching and correcting all of us when we see error. And we start with, go to your brother in private. And if he agrees with you, you've gained him. And amen. But if not, and if not, right? All right, number eight. A concern for discipleship and growth. Tanya, good. That's yours right there. Evangelism that does not result in discipleship is not only incomplete evangelism, but it is entirely misconceived. People need to be informed, encouraged, and equipped to count the cost of following Jesus Christ straight out of Scripture. This is going to be costly. Job, Joseph, 
Carmen, Scott, Ronnie. It's going to be costly. Count it. But the cost of not, whole. And then number nine, biblical church leadership, Courtney. Leadership in the church should not be granted as a response to secular gifts or positions. Whoa, a lot of mistakes are made there. Should not be granted in response to family relationships. Whoa, a lot of mistakes there. Or in recognition of length of membership in the church. Wow, a lot of mistakes there. Those are not qualifiers at all for church leadership. We've got them in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Titus 1. Leadership in the church must be invested in those who seem to evidence in their own lives and who are able to promote in the life of the congregation as a whole faithful belief and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And normally you see an elder because he's already acting like an elder. You don't make them. You don't put them through elder school. And you do the same thing with deacons, by the way. They're already deaking. They're already doing it. And you go, man, God gave us him. God gave us him. And I'll just put an aside here. In the right context and understanding biblical deaconhood, God gave us her. Study that. And so, biblical leadership will be the very last week. And uh, it will be our prayer that these nine will uh, spur us on to some evaluation, some correction where it's needed, some comfort in going, oh, so, yeah, we do some of these things. And I, I see biblical theology happening here in our fourth grade class with the Gospel Project. Man, the gospel project that we're putting our kids through is biblical theology. And they're learning it right here. They're learning it in their youth group. We're getting it all over college. Getting it out of the pulpit. And now you'll go, okay, I see that this is actually happening in every venue in this church and in the life of all that we're about. So in summary, here's a great statement from, from a guy named Mark Ross that Dever quotes in this book. We are one of God's chief pieces of evidence. Evidence of him, right? We are one of God's chief pieces of evidence. Paul's great concern in Ephesians chapter 4, where some are made apostles and some are so that we can equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. In that text, Paul's great concern for the church is that the church manifest and display the glory of God thus vindicating God's character against all the slander that the world throws against his character. Where it be a light in the world. And the slander that God is not worth living for, our world says that, but we as the church are to be pieces of evidence that he is. And God has entrusted to his church the glory of his own name. And that's our responsibility as members of his household, the church of the living God. So that's where we're going to go this fall. And we've got different elders queued up right now. And they are studying and preparing and uh, growing 
even we, we will all grow as we look at some of these. We don't have a book that we want to issue to you, but if you want the book that we're getting, we're glad to share that title with you, but we're not requiring it. It's, it's not going to be helpful for you to sit in here and have read this. We're going to feed this to you and have some discussion around this, but you're certainly welcome to get it if you want. It's called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. Check it out. All right, any closing questions before we pray and go into the night and get ready for next Wednesday night and expository preaching? Brent recorded this tonight, and we are going to record every one of these, all 10 of them. Thank you for asking. So when you're gone, go to our website where the sermons are, and you'll see it'll be very obvious. It'll be very obvious where each Wednesday night is. Yep, yep. And we've got nursery workers that we want to be able to dial in and hear this as well. Other questions? Okay, Father, it is our prayer that as a result of this study, we will be more, a more faithful pillar and buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. And that we will be solid evidence that you are the living God who is worthy to be worshipped for all of eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.